You're listening to the Saz Revolution Show. Bringing you front row seats to the Saz Revolution with your host, Alex Thuma. Okay, welcome, Saz people, to the Saz Revolution Show, bringing you tickets to the front row seats of the Saz Revolution, courtesy of Sascribe Media. I'm your host, Alex Thuma, and super excited to be joined today by Mark Roberge, Chief Revenue Officer of HubSpot. Welcome, Mark. Hey, Alex. Great to be here. Thank you. Uh, thank you for being here. And um, so if, uh, if you didn't know, uh, Mark has a book out. What's the, uh, what's the name of the book, Mark, and where, uh, where can people find it? Yeah, it's the sales acceleration formula. Going, uh, it's using technology data and inbound selling to go from zero to hundred million. Um, best place is either Barnes and Noble or Amazon. You know, choose your choose your poison there. Okay, okay. So good, good plug. And uh, uh, and so just a, a couple of facts for I'm sure everybody has really heard of HubSpot and uh, and probably heard of Mark. Therefore, but a couple of facts. Um, uh, before we uh, kick off on some of the questions. So uh, uh, as I believe and uh, well, un- understand, having read the book and know a little uh, bit about you, that you're uh, an MIT trained uh, uh, engineer, uh, if, if that's right. And you joined a three person startup called HubSpot um, back in 2007. Uh, and um, uh, as its VP uh, of uh, um, Worldwide Sales, is uh, that correct? Yeah, that's that's correct. And you know, for my my journey here is I'm a passionate entrepreneur that was psyched about their mission and and Brian and Darmesh, our co-founders, carved out uh sales for me to be my contribution to the company. And uh I think the the thing that's been appealing or interesting or park or sparked curiosity from from the outside world has been my unique back, you know, unorthodox I think background uh for that journey. You know, yeah. as you point out, you know, I I, I'm an engineer, undergrad. I started my career writing code. Um, I have a business degree from MIT, uh, which is very quant-oriented, and have always looked at the world through this lens of of quant and data and science. And you know, while I implemented some things that were pretty traditional within sales, there were a lot of general practices that I challenged uh, with this lens of data, science, predictability, process, etc. And that's really what the book talks about, everything from hiring reps, training them, managing them, generating demand, running experiments, et cetera, to, to accelerate your sales. Yeah, I mean, I mean, for me, that, that, that is, you know, first of all, you know, one of the things that sort of really stands out and interests me, you know, about your story as such is that, you, you know, you are a, a trained engineer and, you know, you know how to program and, uh, typically, you know, I've got a, a sales sort of, you know, background for, for many years as well. I've not really seen that, that, you know, an SVP who is uh, an engineer, you know, is recruited, you know, to, to help sort of grow the company as its SVP of worldwide sales. So, so why was it, um, you, you know, that Brian Halligan and uh, Dharmesh Shah, the CEO and CTO, hired an engineer, uh, do you think? Was it because you were pals or was it much more than that? It was a combination of a relationship that triggered that came because they're also MIT guys. That I met them there, so it was a little yeah. bit like, "Here's a smart entrepreneur." Darmesh had even backed me in my last company as an angel investor, so there's a relationship there that was part of it. Another part was, you know, I was helping them a day a week for a year before they offered me the position, and that day a week was largely spent selling. And I brought in quite a few customers, um, so there was a little bit of like a known execution. Um, 
risk that was probably off the table to some degree. And to be quite frank, like both Brian and Darmesh, if you look at everything we've done from you know how we positioned our value prop from the beginning to our vacation policy to you know how we think about culture um, to even how we've gone to market, they really try to challenge the norm. Like like doing things the way that it's traditionally been is sort of like the far backup plan that we occasionally do because it's probably still relevant. And uh, I think this was just another example where you know they they wanted to challenge the norm and felt like. Today, uh, organizations are sitting on much larger mounds of data. This is no longer about having this like fancy Rolodex and taking people golfing and treating them to good wine and, and going out in your geo territory to like bang on the doors of your prospects. This is about managing a relatively large influx of demand across a large inside sales team with lots of transactions. This is where most more software sales is, is going. And having a more quant-oriented process, scientific mindset could be advantageous in that journey. Well, it seems, you know, challenging the norm uh, has really or seriously paid off because, uh, I mean, from that three-person startup working in a garage, you know, HubSpot's grown to over, you know, 100 million in annual recurring revenue. Uh, You've IPO'd. You joined the Unicorn Club, so uh, it seems those risks and uh, maybe hiring engineers as SVP of sales is, uh, is the future. I think we're, you know, in a lot of situations, especially in the SaaS audience, I think it's, it's, uh, people should consider it. Um, you know, SaaS, you have a much more uh, leniency toward freemium, towards B2C to B, um, more toward uh, uh, an inside sales team, at least for a good portion of the sales cycle. And all these contribute toward, I think, that more data-oriented mindset. You know, I think there's still, you know, if you're selling jets and you need to close five deals a year to make your number... Maybe not so much, yeah. um, but but like you know, in, in certain sectors, especially in the world of software technology, SaaS, I, I think I think people are are leaning toward that from a leadership standpoint. Okay, and and, and talking of this data oriented mindsets and you know quantifiable uh, sort of metrics and what you brought in uh, as the SVP of worldwide sales. So you know what you talk about in your book is this formula, the sales formula that you've implemented. Um, and there, there are four main components of that. Can you kind of elaborate, you know, where you got this formula from? You know, what are the, the main components there? Yeah, so it's just really trying to frame your um, your own personal mission in this journey. Um, and I think it's, as a lot of entrepreneurs can relate, um, especially in the early days, it, it feels like there's 20 fires going on and you only have enough water to put out three. <laughs> you know, and your ability to put out the three that, uh, that we're really going to ha- prevent the house from, you know, you know, burning down is kind of the key to your execution. So it it take it makes sense to kind of take a step back and try to do some sense making around your personal journey. And for me, it was predictable revenue, uh, uh, predictable scalable revenue growth. Um, sounds kind of obvious, but like that's really what we're trying to do, especially in other stages. And there were four tactics that I really wanted to rally around. One was hiring the same successful salesperson every time. Two was training them in a very predictable way. Uh, three was providing them with the same quality and quantity of demand every month. Mm-hmm. And four was um, holding them accountable to the same predictable sales process against that demand. And I figured if I could execute on that, those four things, it's like a mini machine in a way. And that would likely increase my ability to achieve the mission of, of predictable, scalable revenue growth. So you, you, you've created this sales machine, right? Mm-hmm. 
Um, That's right. Yeah. And, and, and in terms of, let's say, one of those elements, this, this hiring and, and, you know, hiring the same salesperson or the, the, that you need that fits the mold. Um, now, in terms of sort of hiring, would you say that, you know, world-class hiring is the most important driver of, uh, of sales success or the most important driver of this formula? Absolutely. And I think everybody says, yeah, it is. But then it's really hard in the execution, you know, front line to stay true to that. You know, it's like, you know, if, if you talk to a, a, a head of sales and they're going into a busy day and they've got this team meeting at 9 a.m. to like really invigorate the morale of the team. And then they have this big customer pitch at 11 to, you know, for that deal that's going to save the quarter. And then they have a final interview with a candidate um, at four o'clock. And you ask them like, which, where are they super prepared and where are they kind of trying to cut? cutting corners well it'd be great to be super prepared for everything but like they're probably going to prioritize the big team meeting and the big pitch and sort of win the interview right and and the interview arguably is the most important decision on the table that day Mm. right it's like i mean that deal is great but what if you found that next rock star that's going to be with you for five years and be your number one rep or what if you made a hire in that interview that turned out bad and wasted your time for six months I mean, these are, these are like really critical decisions that are easy to be sort of like, I guess, half-ass in a way um, in the moment. Um, and we, it's probably the most important thing to do. So when I, when I was kind of faced with these 20 fires going on, when we were three people in the garage and I looked at, okay, hiring, training, managing, there's actually, I, I kind of have a vision on how I can do an A-plus job across all three, but I can't do that. It's literally 150 hours a week and I'm willing to do 80, but like, I'm going to have to cut corners here and where am I going to cut? And I, I made the conscious decision to cut corners on the training and managing and really try to do an A plus job on hiring. Um, figuring that if I hire exceptionally well, um, I'll get some rock stars. And even if I don't do a phenomenal job at training and managing them, rock stars will figure out a way to win versus if I don't get rock stars in and I get a bunch of B's and maybe a few C's in here, even if I'm awesome at training and managing them, it's going to be an uphill battle. So I literally spent like probably 40 to 50% of my time when we were a small, small organization, just going out and trying to source and interview and recruit the best possible sales team. Okay. Okay. And, 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 and one of the things that I, I noted was that um, you know in terms of hiring a, an SVP of uh, of sales, so the position that you formerly uh, held at HubSpot, uh, that you uh, had a, a list of well, you know, here's four different types of uh, candidates. You know, one being a top performer, one being a you know an experienced SVP of uh, worldwide sales, who's probably you know been with a few public companies. You know, and and then one of them was uh, an entrepreneur, and you know potentially a failed entrepreneur uh, as well. Um, and uh, you said that well, I think you know almost every time that you would go for the uh, for the entrepreneur or would prefer that. Now, is that based a little bit on uh, you having been an entrepreneur <laughs> previously, um, or yeah. yeah? Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, it's a little bit there, but also, I mean, this is a question that's posed to me from entrepreneurs many times a month for the last five years. So it's something that I've, you know, I've counseled many startups on and had the luxury of watching 
possibly hundreds of them make the decision and either succeed or fail. So that's really where this this advice of mine is is coming from is is all those data points. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, it's it's something that evolved into a case that I teach. You know, when I when I go and teach some classes at MIT or Harvard or other places, I put this together, and then it evolved into this chapter in the book. And so it's it's like you know you're a three person startup and you have three engineers and you have to hire a first salesperson. Who is that that you hire? And many of them, especially like they raise their Series A and it's like yeah we got to scale sales now. They try to go find that big name at that company that they're trying to disrupt. Mm. And clearly the that, that's where most of them go. And the problem there, I just had one do this two months ago. The problem there is this person you hire like. Their first question they arrive at the company is like, "Where's my assistant?" Mm. You know what I mean? Like they probably haven't sold the deal, for, you know, front to back, um, uh, in you know, in years, maybe yeah. even decades. Yeah. And their their willingness to get their hands dirty is dangerous. Now, the other place they go to is they they look to like the top rep from the big company they're trying to disrupt. And the challenge there is that rep became a top rep there because the blueprint was established. When they showed up on the first day, they went through probably 30, 60 days of sales training with the pitch book and the WebEx account and the you know product demonstration screen flow. And it's like, you don't have that. So unless you have a background in sales as a CEO, you're not going to have success with that person either. Um, and then I pose sort of this like, you know, someone outside of your industry that just got promoted to sales manager. I actually like that person because they're not far enough away from the front line that they 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 have that they're willing to roll up their sleeves and this is a big opportunity for them career wise to come in and be your director and maybe eventually your VP they're really motivated around it and they probably because they've been promoted to manager they've gotten a taste of the processes that need to be developed the sales methodology how to hire reps etc when they if they get to that stage and the fourth one I pose which is my favorite is that sort of failed entrepreneur who had formal training in the back in the, in their past? So maybe they started their career in the early twenties at Oracle or EMC or Salesforce, and then they got the the entrepreneur bug and did a couple startups. Maybe did one themselves as CEO and failed. Maybe ran biz dev or something. I like that one a lot because they have the formal sales training. Clearly, in their ventures in entrepreneurship, they probably have that sort of used to that really roll up your sleeves, think about process, etc. The third component, which hasn't been discussed yet, that's so critical, is that ability to help you accelerate through your product market journey. Because oftentimes when you're bringing on your first salesperson, the most value that you're going to get from that person and the eventual team they'll build is not necessarily the early revenue, but the early customers and feedback that you get in testing out your model and iterating, et cetera. And a traditional salesperson is going to go out there and make calls with your elevator pitch that you tell them, and it's not going to work, and they're just going to be like, it's not working, and throw up their hands. Versus the entrepreneur is going to take a much more consultative, almost like a product, um, somewhere between like a product management and a salesperson discussion with these folks, understand where their head's at, understand how they're thinking about the problems you're looking to solve, understand the terminology they're using, and be able to come back with, with great feedback um, to help you iterate quickly and, and hone in on product market fit. So that's the one unique skill set I think is so, so important in the early phases of a, of a company journey that that entrepreneur candidate can bring to the table that the others cannot. Okay. No, no, no. It makes sense. Uh, it makes absolute sense. And, uh, and, and once again, obviously, it's worked in the, uh, in, in the case of uh, HubSpot sort of very well. Um, you, meant, you mentioned there that uh, you actually teach uh, sales at, uh, I think, MIT and, uh, and Harvard with the names that you, you mentioned. Now, 
well, you know, what I, I find interesting as well, you know, once again, you know, having a background in sales is that sales is, you know, the one class that's seemingly not really taught and, you know, whether it's in, uh, you know, uh, business schools or just sort of leading schools anywhere. Um, however, it's, you know, seemingly one of the most important drivers of company success. So why isn't it taught more? Um, you know, how have you gone about uh, sort of teaching at MIT and, and, and Harvard uh, on this subject? Yeah, it's a big opportunity. And this is really the concluding state, the concluding um, uh, chapter of my book. It's just it, 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 it amazes me. And it's something that I hope in the next decade I have an opportunity to significantly impact in the field is when you look at the field of entrepreneurship, you know, good sales execution is arguably one of the most important contributors to a, a company's success. Hmm. Um, I think the only other co competing factor is good product execution. And there are some companies that execute amazingly at product and mediocre at sales and they succeed greatly. And there's a lot of companies that you know, execute mediocre at product and exceptionally at sales and they crush it. And, and, and given how important sales execution is in, in the, especially the entrepreneur ecosystem, it amazes me it's not taught. It's not taught at most universities, and it's not looked upon as a, a, a legitimate career path for some of the best and brightest students. Hmm. They, they tend to like banking and consulting and even programming and that kind of stuff. But sales is left to sort of like, I don't know, the second and third tier students who have amazing street smarts and want to make good money. And they're, they're great. They're phenomenal. Yeah. But I just think like there's an opportunity to teach this um, in more systematically uh, earlier in folks' careers. And I think there's an opportunity to attract the best and brightest students. And, um, you know, it's something that I'd like to I'd like to try to to help with in the next decade. Yeah. I mean, I, I just thought it's, it, you know, I looked at sort of MBA courses sort of recently and, you know, you see your your finance and your accounting and even entrepreneurship modules. But you know, the, the lack of any sales, you know, class really kind of stuck out like a sore thumb when, you know, knowing that in a day-to-day -day basis, everybody is pretty much, you know, selling their products and trying to sell, but it's just not taught or seemingly taught uh, anywhere. So that, that was something, you know, that, that really sort of resonated uh, uh, with me. And uh, you mentioned, apart from sales being, you know, one of the most important factors, product also being, you know, one of the most important factors. So, I, I guess you know if we, if we look at um, you know one of the uh, the hottest products in the in the SaaS world at the moment is uh, everyone's talking about Slack right and the, mm -hmm. the the rocket ship that is Slack. Now, I guess the question could be you, you know maybe are we seeing with products like Slack emerge that maybe why would SaaS companies need salespeople if their products are you know so good because seemingly. Slack have reached, you know, 500,000 new customers with no known salespeople. Um, so could you foresee this future where actually, you know, the salespeople have gone because, you know, all the products are, are fantastic? It could be. Um, probably not as aggressively as, as product folks would expect and probably more aggressively than sales folks would expect. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think it's, it's, um, it's amazing. Um, and I think this is going to be led by the world of SaaS um, in this whole sort of B2C to B freemium movement, commercialization of software, however you want to frame it, mm. um, you know, our consumerization of software, sorry. Um, you know, it's just the, the, the move, the, the repositioning of the focus of product development around the needs of the decision maker and VP and moving it more toward the 
the um, early phases focused on the end user and complementing that focus with a go-to-market strategy that makes the end user the decision maker, enabling them to adopt software without getting approval from the C-suite, without getting approval from IT, without getting approval from finance. I think that's the winning formula that's very difficult to find and execute on, but when you have it, you're going to crush it, especially in a SaaS business. And in that case, like you know, you can use sort of cookie crumbs along the way to get adoption, to initial adoption, to get some purchase, to get expansion of both the purchase as well as the usage without ever needing to talk to those folks. And that's phenomenal. I think, you know, one of the ones that's been around more along those lines, I don't know if most people would classify as SaaS, but like Dropbox, you know, being very, very successful at, you know, getting a lot of usage and then expanding that usage over time without talking to them. But even in their case, um, you know, you, you, you have situations where, you know, the CIO of Fidelity finds out that of their 80,000 employees, you know, 30,000 are using Dropbox without, you know, his or her permission, yeah. <laughs> you know, which can be an enormous security threat. And that's not, you know, I don't think the CIO gets over that hurdle, like, of, of their research around sort of the Dropbox for business um, package and whether it meets their security needs on online. Mm. You know what I mean? I think, like, even in that case where you've got a company who executed so phenomenally on the humanless adoption cycle needs salespeople out there, and this is in fact happening with them, uh, needs salespeople out there to have those handshakes in sort of the biggest of customers with the most influential decision makers, right? Now, that's the extreme case. I, I do think that like, as you execute these SaaS businesses, um, and you know, I, I you know, often talk to these entrepreneurs, they'll say, well, when, you know, how do we know when to introduce a salesperson? How do we know when we should pass a company over to sales? And my counsel there is try for the, you know, the Slack Dropbox model. Try to do all of this with no one right out of the gate. See if you can get people to your product, adopting your product, buying your product, expanding your product, succeeding with your product without anyone. Chances are you're going to fail somewhere. If you're not, call me. I want to invest, right? <laughs> but, but, but chances are that you're going to fail at some point. And wherever you're failing on the conversion rate, throw some people at it. And don't throw people at it by in the, in the frame that you're th- waving the white flag and you're giving up and you're going to have to have a team there. Throw some people at it to see if they can diagnose what's going on. And then step back and ask yourself, is this a problem we can, we can solve and still dehumanize? Or is it just the reality that we're going to need people there? In the HubSpot context for us, with a marketing software, we were never able to get anyone to buy without people. You know, we were, we were super, super successful at getting folks aware of our mission. We were super, super successful at educating them on inbound marketing and our product without talking to them, thanks to Mike Volpe, our CMO, and our team. Mm-hmm. But we were never able to get them over to buy-in. And probably just because, like, inbound marketing, it's, it's, a, it's just a lot to absorb. It's not like you're going to do this for a day and, and see tons of leads flowing in. You've got to commit to it and... You got a, there's kind of a personalized discussion on how to adapt this to your particular business and it required a person. And that's fine. We launched it, we, we built a huge inside sales team and brought on 10, you know, 14,000 customers with a really successful business around it. It was just the reality of our mission. So that, you know, I think it, companies hopefully will succeed on the product side and it will diminish the importance of sales in the traditional software function they've had over decades. Mm-hmm. But I think that sales will still be necessary 
to bring a lot of these missions to, to fruition, whether in the Dropbox model at the comp- complicated enterprise sale or at the HubSpot model where it was, we just weren't able to get over the buy stage. I agree and, uh, and, and fantastic answers. So I think um, you know, we've come to the, uh, the, the end of the, uh, the SaaS revolution show here uh, today and I, I want to thank you uh, for your time. So your book, uh, The Sales Acceleration Formula, Using data, technology, uh, and inbound selling to go from zero to 100 million is uh, available to buy now on Amazon. And uh, and actually, just to prove that, uh, despite obviously you know the questions should uh, tell that so I, I've actually read the book. But uh, at the end of the book, I, I noticed that all proceeds of the book go to charity. Um, so uh, uh, that's uh, amazing. What is that charity? Uh, here's a little plug for that uh, as well. Yeah, I appreciate. I really appreciate that, Alex. Uh, an organization that I found out about last year and HubSpot's been really close to as well is Build.org, um, which you know, as you know. Not every uh, kid out there had the you know childhood that you and I had, Alex. A lot of folks, you know, are, are born into some tough situations, whether that's family or neighborhood or school situations, and at some point in their life get a little off path. And there's great organizations out there that help those folks with mentorship or sports. Well, what Build.org does, it takes these sort of freshmen in high school that are in these situations and exposes them to entrepreneurship. And gets them excited about building their own business and provides them with the resources and mentorship to be able to do that. Um, and then they've had huge success rates in, in actually you know, teaching them the business processes and getting businesses launched and, and set themselves up for you know, going into college and, and into a great career. So all the proceeds of the book go to that, that journey. They've been super successful and I appreciate the opportunity to mention that. Yeah, no, no, it's fa- it's fantastic. It's fantastic um, that that you're doing that. So, um, what, I mean, thanks once again, Mark, for for joining. Uh, you've been listening to the SaaS Revolution Show, and uh, uh, tune in for next time. And um, uh, yeah, we'll uh, we'll speak to you soon.